The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Take your Bibles and look with me at Exodus chapter 3. We're going to be studying this evening Exodus 3 verses 1 through 10 and just beginning to look at the account of the burning bush. This is one of the great accounts in the Old Testament. This is one of the great stories in the Bible. Uh, it's such a revelation of the glory of God, and there's so much spiritual significance uh, hidden within the text as you study it and you see more things. But I've entitled this message, at least on the top of my page here, Moses Shaped and Called. Moses Shaped and Called. I want to zero in specifically on what God was doing in Moses and how he was preparing Moses for his call, how he was preparing him uh, through 40 years in the desert, and how in the burning bush he's calling him to a ministry, calling him to himself first and foremost, but then to a work that was far greater than he could ever have achieved alone. Now, throughout the Bible, we have this image of the potter shaping the clay. It says in Jeremiah 18, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I'll give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hand. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as it seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter does, declares the Lord? Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. And so are we all in the hands of the Master. We are clay, and He is shaping us. He's preparing us to be vessels for His service, to be instruments for His use. He's shaping us, and He's molding us. And so He was doing with Moses. And His ways are not our ways. His timing is not our timing. His approach is not our approach. We would have thought Moses would have been ready at age 40. God didn't think so. And so it would be another 40 years before Moses would be called to the ministry that he called him to. So it says also in Isaiah 64, verse 8, Yet our Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Isaiah 64, 8. We are all being shaped, all of us who are believers, being shaped by the hand of God. Now last time in Exodus 2, we saw Moses trying to take matters in his own hand. We know the context of the book of Exodus, and that is that God's chosen people, the Jews, have been sold into slavery in Egypt. They are in bondage, and they are in, in uh, a cruel bitterness to their lives. There's no escape for them. They can't get out. And so, uh, despite the fact that they are God's covenant people, that God had made them a promise, that he would be their God and that they would be his people and that they would live in the promised land despite all of this covenant that God made with Abraham and reiterated with, uh, with Isaac and with Jacob. Despite all of this, they were laboring in bondage in Egypt. And so a deliverer was awaited. They were crying out for one. And finally he was born in Exodus 2, Moses. And uh, despite the, the, the cruelty of the Pharaoh's command that all Jewish babies, uh, be all boy babies be killed, Moses somehow managed to escape. And God just sovereignly uh, ordained that Moses be trained and raised up in Pharaoh's household. And Stephen says in Acts 7 that Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. 
We see all that. But at a certain point, Moses becomes angry at what he sees is happening between the Egyptians and his own people, the Jews. And so he seizes matters and takes them in his own hand. Look at verse 11 uh, and 12. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people uh, were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, glancing this way and that and seeing no one. He killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked one, the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? Uh, the man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. And then Moses fled for his life. When Pharaoh heard what had happened, he wanted to kill him. And Moses fled for his life, and he went out to Midian. Now, as we look at this incident, we see that Moses is determined to free his people his way. He wants to seize control of the situation. But man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God requires. And Moses' ways of delivering his people are not God's ways. It's not the way that God is going to do it. He's motivated by human rage and pride. Why did Moses look this way and that before killing the Egyptian? Because he knew in his heart what he was doing was wrong. It was out of God's will. And so he glances this way and that because his conscience, even before he does it, is testifying against him that what he's doing is out of God's will. All the more when what he had done uh, became known, he was terrified, he was afraid. And so he had to flee for his life. This is Moses and the arm of flesh trying to, to relieve his people through his own wisdom, his own strength, his own ways. And so he flees for his life. But you know, God's ways are not our ways. And his way of freeing his people is very different from Moses' approach. So also is his approach toward leadership development. That's a very trendy term in terms of church work. We're always looking at the world and at business and how great leaders are formed and shaped. I myself was uh, raised as a Christian through the ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ, a great ministry. And they have a great impact uh, around the world, around the country and around the world. But one of the things I've noticed about Crusade and many other groups is their tendency to to elevate people who are successful in the secular realm and point to them as great leaders if they have a Christian testimony at all. In other words, the successful athlete, the successful entertainer, the successful businessman. And we're going to elevate them and put them on a pedestal and say, look at that, and then they go out and they give testimony to their faith in Christ as though somehow we should listen more carefully to the words of this successful uh, businessman or successful athlete than we should to any other individual. This is not God's way of thinking. God's ways of shaping and preparing a leader are different too. We would have thought at age 40 that Moses was absolutely at the prime of life, at the pinnacle of his ability to be useful to God. Look at all of his advantages. He was shaped and trained in the education, the wisdom of all the Egyptians. It says in the book of Acts, in Acts 7, Stephen said he was trained. He was powerful in speech and action. He knew all of the things that there were to know as a leader among the, uh, the Egyptian people. Some people speculate that he was being prepared uh, for the throne, that, that that particular pharaoh had no son, no prince to take his place. This is speculation, but we know that, uh, that he was highly skilled, highly polished, highly trained in worldly wisdom. But God's thinking, his wisdom is so different from ours, and worldly wisdom is foolishness to God. And so Moses is not even close to being ready to lead God's people. At age 40, he's only halfway there. He's got another 40 years to go of training. 
It says in Luke 16, 15, Jesus said this, what is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. Did you hear that? I'll read it again. Luke 16, 15, what is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. Moses wasn't ready to lead God's people. He wasn't thinking the way God does. And so he needed to go out into the desert for 40 years. Moses had enrolled in the school of the Egyptians. Now it's time to enroll in God's school. And it happened to be out in the desert. And I find it interesting as you look across the Bible, how many of God's great leaders were shaped and trained in the fiery blast of the desert? I find this very interesting. Think with me about this. Abraham, for example, traveled for three days journey through the desert to sacrifice his son Isaac. What was he thinking as he wandered through that desert? How about Joseph? He was thrown into a cistern in the desert, and there he was sold into slavery. We know that Israel wandered for 40 years in the desert. What effect did that have on their character? What effect did that have on their reliance on God? David seemed like he did nothing but live his life in the desert. He tended sheep out in the desert. His brothers made fun of him, said, who did you leave those few sheep with out in the desert? You're with them all the time. So David grew up in the desert, and then once he had been anointed king by Samuel, and once he had killed Goliath and Saul had set his jealousy on him, he fled and hid in the desert and pretty much lived there with his men, constantly going from one desert to the next, out in the wasteland, in the waste places. And then when his, later, after he had become king and his son Absalom rose up against him, where did he flee again? Back out into the desert. And so David was shaped and molded in the desert. How about Elijah? Remember how Elijah was fed by the, by the ravens out in the desert, by the brook Kedron. Then he, tra uh, the, he, he what's, I'm sorry, uh, brook Kedron. Then he fled across the desert uh, to the widow at Zarephath, shaped in the desert. And then when he was running for his life against, uh, from Jezebel, uh, he was out, out in the middle of the desert where that broom tree was, and he laid down and said, I'm ready to die. But he was shaped and molded out in the desert. And then, of course, who do you think of when you think of the desert? A desert prophet. Yeah, John the Baptist. From an early age, he went out and uh, he lived in the desert. And there he waited until the time came for his public ministry to begin, uh, Luke 180. So he just grew up in the desert, in the land of scorpions, in the land of heat and colds, where he ate locusts and wild honey. And he had a camel's uh, belt, uh, leather belt around his uh, waist and wore camel's hair. And Jesus Christ himself, our Lord and Savior Christ, 40 days he wandered in the desert, Tempted by the devil, fasting, shaped and molded in the desert. The Apostle Paul, did he spend any time in the desert? Yes, he did. After his conversion, he went to Arabia. Now, have you seen any pictures of Arabia? I don't know if you've ever been there. But when I think of Arabia, I don't think of lush green areas. I think of desert. And so Paul was out there, and he received, I believe, the gospel that he would proclaim to the Gentiles. It was confirmed to him during his sojourn out in the desert of Arabia. And then Philip led the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ in the desert. Why do I mention this? Well, I wonder if we know very much about the desert. What do you think of when you think of the desert? Think of a hot wasteland, a place where, where there, there just is nothing. There's no, it's like there's no future. There's nothing but God. And you have to look to God even to survive. Just to survive. A.W. Pink put it this way. He said, the heart must be separated and the spirit divorced from the world if progress is to be made in spiritual things. Think about that. It says, the heart must be separated and the spirit divorced from the world if progress is to be made in spiritual things. I've thought much about that statement. Do you find yourself spinning your wheels in terms of your own Christian development? Could it be you've hit the brick wall of material success, 
of the American lifestyle, and you will not continue to make progress until you divorce yourself from worldly aspirations and comforts and ease. That's when progress will start to be made again in your life. Out in the desert. You think, well, where is the desert? Well, I don't know. There was a physical desert for them. For us, this is some of the best real estate in the world, America, I mean. It's hard to get away from the prosperity. All I'm saying is, as I look in the scripture, God sent Moses out into the desert to prepare him. Look at verse 1 of our section here, Exodus 3.1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, to the mountain of God. So there Moses is out in the desert. Not only is he in the desert, he's in the backside of the desert. Now, I'm not sure what the backside of the desert is, but it sounds pretty bad. It sounds very extreme. It's not just the desert, but it's the backside of the desert. He's on the far side over there. And there he is being humbled. I've thought much about the humbling of Moses here. Not only is Moses out there in the desert, but whose sheep is he with? He's tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. And how old is he? He's 80 years old. He would, by almost all accounts, be seen to be a failure. 80 years old, tending somebody else's flock, your father-in-law, who seems to just live on and on. When are you going to inherit those sheep, Moses? You have very little to show, very little material prosperity. You're tending your father. Who's tending your sheep? I don't have any sheep. And then Moses is out on the far side of the desert, tending somebody else's sheep. A.W. Pink put it this way, the, the backside of the desert is where men and things, the world and self, present circumstances and their influences are all valued at what they are really worth. There it is and there alone that you will find a divinely adjusted balance in which to weigh all within and all around. There are no false colors, no borrowed plumes, no empty pretension. The enemy of your souls cannot gild the sand of that place. All is reality there. The heart that has found itself in the presence of God at the backside of the desert has right thoughts about everything. It is raised far above the exciting influences of this world's schemes. The din and noise, the bustle and confusion of Egypt do not fall upon the ear in that distant place. The crash of the monetary and commercial world is not heard there. The sigh of ambition is not heard there. This world's fading laurels do not tempt there. The thirst for gold is not felt there. The eye is never dimmed with lust, nor the heart swollen with pride there. Human applause does not elate, nor does human censure depress there. Does it really matter what people think about us? Out in the desert, it doesn't. In a word, everything is set aside save the stillness and light of the divine presence. God's voice alone is heard. His light is enjoyed. His thoughts received. This is the place to which all must go to be educated for the ministry. And there all must remain if they would succeed in the ministry. Interesting thoughts. And that's where God sent Moses to prepare him for his ministry in Egypt. He'd gotten all the best the world had to offer in Egypt. It was the richest, most powerful country in the world. But he had to get away from there to be truly prepared to be God's man. And how long was he there? How long? Forty years. Forty years enrolled in God's school in the desert. God's timing is not our own. It's kind of like a roast in the oven. You know, it's not done yet. Put it back in. Forty years. He's out in the desert. 
Nowadays, we have instant graduation from new beginner to leader. We're always looking for leaders quickly, aren't we? We're looking for people who are instantly ready to take this or that or the other responsibility in the church. But the New Testament says in 1 Timothy 3.6, an elder must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. There's a timetable. There's a preparation. God shapes leaders over a period of time. God's work in Moses, therefore, could not take place overnight. He ordained 40 years on the backside of the desert. God allowed also Israel to groan under severe suffering for two more generations, day after day after day. And don't think that God doesn't know. Look what it says in, um, in Exodus chapter 2 and verse 25. It says, so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. And then verse uh, 23, during that long period, the king of Egypt died, the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help uh, because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so day after day, the Hebrew actually says all the days, all of those days that they were groaning. So it wasn't a matter of years for God. It was a matter of days. Day after day, he heard the groaning of his people, and he waited. He waited for his perfect timing in Moses' life. He was willing to put Israel through another 40 years of suffering to prepare his man for the right moment. Now, if you look at the specifics, you see the total humiliation, the humbling of Moses. He goes with, as we've already mentioned, Jethro's flock, and he's tending it in a very rugged and rough area. He goes to Horeb. Now, I've had some confusion before about Horeb and Sinai. What are the two? Well, I think A.W. Pink settles it for me when he says that Horeb is really a mountain range, a whole area, a mountainous region, and Sinai is a particular mountain in that mountain range. It's called the mountain of God, and we call it Sinai, although sometimes it takes that name Horeb. It was the same mountain to which Moses would later live, or lead Israel, and there they would receive the Ten Commandments in Exodus 19. It was the same mountain that Elijah fled to and where he heard the still small voice. And so this was a significant mountain called the mountain of God. And on that mountain, Moses has an extraordinary experience. Read with me now beginning at verse 2. It says, There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Stop there. As Moses is tending Jethro's flock, he comes upon a strange sight, one he'd never seen before in all his 80 years. 
And it was a bush that was burning but not consumed. It was burning bright and hot, and yet it didn't disappear. Now, we know enough to know that uh, fire must have fuel. And so if the bush is on fire, that's unusual, but not that unusual. Maybe a lightning bolt or something has hit it. And so it's burning. Something like that would not be all that strange. But how odd would it be that a bush would just keep standing up under that flame and not disappear? I think it's fascinating how God knows how to attract us to him. He knows how to lure us in, doesn't he? He knows what kind of bait is going to get us to turn aside and look. He knows everything about you. He knows how you're made. He knows what you love and what you hate. He knows all of your history, and he knows how to attract you. This is what some people call in theology irresistible grace. I call it effectual grace and just the grace of a good student. God knows exactly what you want, exactly what might be fascinating and interesting. Don't we see this with Jesus in his evangelistic encounters? Remember Nicodemus? He says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. What does that cause Nicodemus to do? Ask another question. Go on in the conversation, right? Again, the Samaritan woman at the well, what does he say? He asks her for a drink, which is odd enough because he's a Jew and she's a Samaritan woman. Ordinarily, they wouldn't have said a word to one another. Would have felt quite awkward that the two of them were alone. And Jesus seizes the moment. He seizes the moment. And uh, he says, give me a drink. And then he says, if you knew who was speaking to you, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Isn't that fascinating? Doesn't that allure? Doesn't it attract? What does the woman do? He says, says who are you? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well? Oh, oh yes. He's greater than Jacob who gave the well. Yes, I am greater because anyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst. Do you see what's going on? Jesus is enticing her. He's attracting her into a conversation. I've studied this in terms of evangelistic technique. You ought to study things that would make you interesting enough to talk to. To lure people into conversations about eternal things. Brother or sister, are you saved? May not do it. You may have to think about a way to attract somebody in. God used, in this case, a burning bush to attract Moses to turn aside. And so he went. And why? Because God knows what is in a man. John chapter 2, speaking of Jesus, said, Jesus knew all men. He did not need anyone's testimony about man because he knows what's in a man. He knew what was in Moses, and he knew what would attract him. You would have gone too, don't you think? A bush like that burning up but not consumed. You'd say, hmm, what a strange sight. I think I'll go over and look at it. You would have gone to, I know it. But then what happens? The angel of the Lord calls to him. Look what it says. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. The angel of the Lord, it says. Now, who is this angel of the Lord? Well, this is a fascinating study. And I went through all of the passages in the Old Testament concerning the angel of the Lord. We're going to look at just a few of them so that you can see. First of all, within the text itself, there's clear indications that we know who this angel of the Lord is. Look what it says. It says, there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within the bush. So the angel of the Lord is appearing from within the bush. That's what the text says. Now, Moses says, I'm going to go over and see this strange sight while the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over, God called to him from within the bush. Why do you think the text says that? Because he's identifying the Lord and God, in verse 4, to the angel of the Lord that had already appeared to Moses from within the bush. And so God and the Lord are also ascribed to the angel of the Lord. 
And so he calls out to him, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. And then he says, do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals. And then he interacts with him. In verse 6, he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Later on in this account, he will give him his name. And what is the name that God gives to Moses from within the bush? It is the name Yahweh, the name Jehovah, the name I am. The great I am, this is God's name. And so the angel of the Lord appears and gives him this name. Look back with me, if you would, or sorry, look ahead to Exodus 23, verse 20 through 23. Exodus 23, verse 20 through 23. Here the phrase angel of the Lord is not used, but a fascinating uh, expression shows us uh, the significance of this angel. Verse 20, it says, See, I am sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay attention to him and listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion. Stop there. That is odd, isn't it? Are angels ever in a position of forgiving or not forgiving? Anywhere else in the Bible? I don't think so. They're messengers. They're servants. They don't forgive or not forgive. But this angel does. He says, don't rebel against him because he will not forgive your rebellion. And then what's the next thing it says? Since my name is in him. Now that's very unusual, isn't it? God says, I have put my name in him. The angel of the Lord, I believe, is Jesus, the Son of God. God's name is in him. We baptize in the name singular of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. One name, three persons. My name is in him, he says. Look back at Genesis chapter 16. This is the account of Hagar in the desert. Genesis 16, verse 7. It says, The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Now look at this, look at verse 10. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. Stop there. Do you find that odd? Is there any other place that you know where an angel makes that kind of statement? I will do such and such. I will increase your, des your descendants so they'll be too numerous to count. Who is the angel of the Lord to make a statement like that? All other angels just bring a message from God. This angel tells what he's going to do. He is going to increase Hagar's descendants so they'll be too numerous to count. Look down at verse 13. She gave this name, this is Hagar now, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees me, for, he, for she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. Who's she referring to? The angel of the Lord. And she calls him God. We have the same thing in Genesis 22, verse 11 and following. This is a great chapter where Abraham is tested and commanded by God to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. You remember this account? God stops him in verse 11. The angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. 
Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God. Look at what he says. Because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Is that not strange? Who is this angel of the Lord to make a statement like that? You've not withheld from me your son, your only son. Well, who are you? You're just an angel, a servant, a messenger. No, he's the angel of the Lord, and he makes this statement. Verse 13, Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket was a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Verse 15, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand in the seashore. Do you see what he says? The angel of the Lord says, I swear by myself. This is God speaking. Can it be any other than God himself? And I believe the second person of the Trinity. Now, don't turn there, but just listen to these other accounts. Numbers 22, the Balaam's uh, donkey, the angel of the Lord, is standing there with a drawn sword. Remember, flashing back and forth. The donkey saw it, Balaam didn't. And so the donkey won't go on any further. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. So he bowed low and fell face down. The angel of the Lord asked him, why have you beaten your donkey these three times? I have come here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me, says the angel of the Lord. Who are you? Why does it matter that my path is reckless before you? But if you're God, now that matters. And the angel of the Lord is God himself. If she had not turned away, speaking of the donkey, I would certainly have killed you by now. Angels don't speak that way. They don't make autonomous decisions that way. He said, I would have killed you by now. And then there are similar accounts in Judges chapter 2. The angel of the Lord appears to Israel at Bochim and says, because you have disobeyed me, I will not drive out the people ahead of you. The angel of the Lord says that. And then in Judges chapter 6, with the call of Gideon, read that account, and then with the birth of Samson, again and again. So who is this angel of the Lord? I believe that he is the second person of the Trinity. Do you remember in John chapter 8 when the uh, Jews were there opposing Jesus and Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad Jesus said that. And the Jews said, you're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. Do you remember his answer? I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was born, I am. What did the Jews do then? Do they debate the point? Say, well, that's an interesting interpretation of Scripture. Discussion ended. They picked up stones to stone him. And why? Because he was claiming to be God in the flesh. But he had a right to do it because who is the one that gave that name to Israel? Who spoke the word I am out of the burning bush to Moses? Was it not the angel of the Lord? Jesus had every right to say before Abraham was born, I am, because he's the one who said it to Moses to begin with. This is the angel of the Lord who's appearing to Moses in flames of a burning bush. And he calls out to him and he gives him a job to do. There's more besides. I'll tell you what, the scripture is deep and rich on this. It's the angel of the Lord that uh, David had to sacrifice concerning because his sword was drawn against the people in the time of the sinful census. And it was the angel of the Lord that was destroying Israel. You, you think about Jesus wrongly. I know I do too. We don't, we don't think of him with a flaming sword in his hand, but there he is. He is a holy and a powerful God. 
This is Jesus before his day, the days of his incarnation. Now, what is the spiritual symbolism back at Exodus chapter 3? What is the spiritual symbolism of this burning bush? Well, first of all, I think we have to see that any ministry begins with a vision of the glory of God. How did the Apostle Paul begin his ministry? Was it not a vision of the glory of Jesus Christ, the resurrected one, so bright that it blinded him, a vision of the glory of Christ? And so it was the call of Moses began with a vision of the glory of God. So also Isaiah the prophet in chapter 6 of Isaiah. He saw the glory of God. He saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And so this is the beginning of Moses' ministry, a vision of the glory of God. And Moses is terrified, and he hides his face because he's afraid of the glory of God. Now, the burning bush symbolizes many things. First of all, I think it symbolizes God's grace. If you're a, a believer in Christ, and you know anything about the character of God, you know that our God is a thrice holy God. He is holy, holy, holy. And his eyes are so pure, he can't even look at evil. Doesn't that bring a question up in your mind? How could such a holy God have anything to do with the human race whatsoever? How could he be in our church, First Baptist Church, Durham? How could he be in Israel doing anything? How could this holy God, who it says in Hebrews 12:29 is a consuming fire, and that fire represents his holiness and his judgment against sin, how could a God like that dwell in the midst of tinder-like people like us and not consume us? There's only one word for it, grace. And so that burning bush symbolizes the grace of God, the holy God who burns like a fire, and yet we are not consumed. We should have been consumed because we're tender, we're sinful, we're wicked. And so there is this burning bush, and it symbolizes God, whose eyes are so pure, Habakkuk 1.13, he cannot look at any evil at all, and yet he dwells in the midst of it all the time, and he doesn't consume us. Because of grace. Also, the word for bush actually represents a thorny bush. It's a specific kind of bush that grows in that region, and it's got thorns all over it. When you think of thorns, what do you think of? I think of two things. I think of Genesis 3, and I think of a certain crown that was given to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Genesis 3, because that was the curse given to Adam because of his sin. Cursed is the ground because of you. You will wrestle with it and will produce thorns for you, remember? And so the, the thorns represent the curse of God because of sin. Jesus took on the thorns, didn't he? He took on the curse. You've studied the book of Galatians. And Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. And so Jesus, the angel of the Lord, in the midst of that thorny bush, represents Jesus in the midst of the curse that God gave in Genesis chapter 3. The bush also represents resurrection, doesn't it? You say, how in the world does the bush represent repre uh, resurrection? Well, you remember the time when the Sadducees came and questioned Jesus? Do you remember that? And they said, uh, they came with a story about the, the woman that married seven brothers in a row. We've talked about that before. Whose, whose wife will she be of the seven since all of them were married to her? And Jesus deals with that. And then he says, but now concerning the resurrection of the dead, you Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection. Haven't you read what God said to you in the account of the burning bush? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And so this is the teaching that Jesus gave concerning resurrection. 
Abraham is still alive. Isaac is still alive. Jacob is still alive. I am the God of your father. Your father is still alive, Moses. I am the God of Amram, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Now, today. For those of you who don't believe in resurrection, the greatest evidence is found in this statement that the angel of the Lord made right from the flames of the burning bush. The burning bush, I think, also symbolizes Israel's fiery trials in Egypt. It says in Deuteronomy 4.20, But as for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron-smelting furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his inheritance, as you now are. Isaiah 43.2 says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. They will just burn off your dross. And so there is... There is Egypt, or Israel, in the midst of, of a fiery trial in Egypt all those many years. But they're not consumed. They actually thrive. They keep multiplying. They keep growing. And so it represents their trials. The bush also symbolizes Israel's lowliness and humility. It's not a cedar of Lebanon, after all. It's just a bush. You know, I wonder after the angel of the Lord left, if it was just a bush again. It would be God's way, wouldn't it? Just like uh, the Jordan River, remember when it walled up on either side and they walked across? And when they got across... What happened to the Jordan River? Back normal again. I wonder if that bush was, you know, you look at it, did that really happen? You know? The flame is gone. The miracle is over. It's in my memory. But there's no other evidence. It's just a bush. It's not a cedar of Lebanon. It represents Israel's lowliness. Deuteronomy 26.5 Then you shall declare before the Lord your God My father was a wandering Aramean and he went down to Egypt with a few people and lived there and became a great and powerful numerous nation. The Lord did not set his love on you because you were some great nation because you were actually the fewest of all people. You're just a bush and yet I'm going to elevate you to be my people. The humiliation of Israel. The thorn bush also symbolizes Israel's ultimate fruitlessness. Naturalists tell us that thorns are aborted branches. They start growing and nothing comes of them. But what comes on the end of a branch? Well, if it's a fruit tree, hopefully fruit. Israel is a fruitless, a fruitless nation. God later says they're like a, a, a grapevine that bears nothing but sour grapes or no fruit at all. Just thorns. And so they represent Israel's fruitlessness. And yet the fire in the bush symbolizes God's determination to dwell among his people gloriously. It says in Deuteronomy 33:16, with the best gifts of the earth and the fullness of the favor of him who dwelt in the burning bush. God dwells in the burning bush. The word dwell is related to the word for Shekinah, the dwelling of God's glory in the midst of his people. It's the same Hebrew root. And so there is God dwelling in the midst of Israel. They're not consumed, we already talked about it, by grace. But the, the fact that, that that glow, that bright fire is burning in the midst of the bush shows his determination to dwell in the midst of his people. The word became flesh and made his what? His dwelling amongst us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, we're out of time. When we look next time at it, we're going to see the calling of Moses and how he responds. Moses is just a human being. And God's going to set before him, having set this incredible miracle in front of him, he's going to set before him a calling so great that only God could accomplish it. Moses is going to react the way you and I would react, by looking inward at his own resources. God's going to train him to look upward at his resources. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. 
Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.